you looking at? What? Something bothering you? You find me amusing, huh? What are you staring at? Look, this isn't comfortable for me, you know, being here, being like this. This isn't an easy thing to do. And let me tell you something, your stares certainly don't make it any easier. What is it? Haven't you seen anyone in my condition before? Huh? Look, I don't want to be like this, but I've got my reasons, all right? I'm, I'm restrained because, because I want to be, all right? I want to be, but I don't want to be. It's crazy. <laughs> you probably think I'm crazy, don't you? Don't you? Yeah, well, maybe I am. The truth is I'm, I'm stuck. I'm trapped and I can't get out right now and I don't want to get out why should I so I can experience more pain no thank you look I might be confined I might be insane but at least I'm safe at least I'm protected I'm not so vulnerable I hate being vulnerable so I've learned the hard way I I used to be vulnerable I used to trust people <laughs> What a joke. I gotta be so gullible. Well, I'm not anymore. Not since he was drunk. My father, he was always drunk, but this time he was really out of control and she hadn't done a thing. That didn't matter to him, never did. Once he started in on her, he just wouldn't quit. She tried to reason with him, but he was already on her with the screaming and the cursing and the punching. And she was screaming and begging for him to stop. Please, please stop. Just stop. You're hurting her. Stop hitting my, you're hurting her. Stop hitting my mother. But he didn't stop. She did. She stopped screaming and then she stopped moving. We had to move away soon after that and Life was never really the same. Actually, that's a lie. It's just been more of the same, more drinking, more hurting. My wife left me. After 12 years, no warning, just like that, just a note on the kitchen table leaning against a salt shaker. Why? Why did you? I loved you. I depended on you. How could you leave me for him? For him? Ah, oh, it hurts. I miss her. My insides are sore. And there's nothing or no one that can relieve this pain. I know that now. That's why I keep to myself. I trust no one. Not my wife, my father, my friends, not anymore. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Take my pain to God, uh-huh. Well, let me tell you something. Prayers are wasted breath. Because if he really cared, if he really loved me, he wouldn't have just stood around and let all this stuff happen. Now, would he? Huh? Answer me, Christian! So do you get it? I choose this confinement, this constriction, because it's safe. It's my protection. I live inside this cocoon, tightly bound. It's the way I want it. It's better this way. It's best because no one is going to get to me again. And 
that includes God. Besides, even if I wanted to get out of this, I, I realize how I got here, but I don't know how to get out. I realize how I got here, I don't know how to get out. I think if we're honest, every person here could say that at some time in their life, maybe even right now. Every person here is born with an invisible straitjacket, and apart from Jesus, you're destined to wear it all the days of your life, and even now, some of us here are wearing that straitjacket, nobody else can see it, but it's just as real. Born into captivity, but Jesus said, I've come to give you life, and I've come to give you liberty, and that's what this series is about. I don't know the source of your straitjacket, but I know the source of your redemption. His name really is Jesus. John chapter 8 this morning, if you open your Bible there, as we get rolling on this little intro this morning, that will intro really our series, as well as the book that we're going to be studying together. Jesus made a promise in John chapter 8 and verse 31. Look at what it says. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now Jesus said, it's the truth that sets us free. Now we have an adversary, we have an enemy. Jesus called him the liar and the father of lies. You see, he wants to distort the truth and hide the truth because he knows if you ever learn the truth, you're gonna be set free to live exactly what Jesus said, I've come to give life abundantly. Now here's the theme really of our book. Here's the theme really of the next seven weeks. It says this, we can live freely by knowing the truth of Christ's victory and the strategy of the enemy. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You need to know the truth about Christ's victory and the strategy of the enemy. Now, the reality is we're gonna talk a lot about the demonic. We're gonna talk a lot about Satan and the strategy of the enemy. We're going on a little intelligence gathering beginning this morning because if you don't know your enemy and anticipate his strategy, you have no hope of victory. And what this series is about and this book that I've authored is really about learning the tactics of the adversary, learning his strategy so that you can anticipate his moves personally, so that you can walk this out daily with Jesus is called life abundantly. What do you think is true will absolutely begin to define you. Now, a lot of us believe in God. The reality is the average American doesn't really believe in Satan. Okay, you may believe in Satan in theory, but do you really believe he exists practically? June of 1992, I come out of the police academy. I meet Raquel Avila. Now, the backstory, amazingly, Raquel is one of our global partners. She's a missionary down in Peru. But in June of 1992, when I came out of the academy, she wasn't a missionary. She had no opportunity, no inkling that she would ever be a missionary. She's a cop with KCPD. This was my break-in officer when I came out of the academy in June of 1992. Long before I ever knew I'd be in the ministry, long before I ever knew I'd be a pastor, 
long before she ever knew she'd be a missionary. I come out, she's my FTO, my field training officer, June of 1992, I'm just fresh out of the academy. Now, understand, as a rookie cop, I knew a lot of the academy answers. I'd been in the academy for six months, and I knew how to do my job in theory. I'd been given all the answers in the academy, but it wasn't very long before I realized I still had a lot to learn practically. So I'm with this lady, now we call her Raquel now, it's her real name, it's a little more dignified, but at the time when she was a cop, we called her Rocky. Everybody called her Rocky. And let me tell you, Rocky was a great cop. She was tough, all right, she's Latino. And when she would start cussing somebody out in Spanish, they would be like, whatever you say, right? And uh, I'm just telling you. So she was there to train me, and for the next three months, we were going to ride around together at night, and she was going to uh, help break me in. It's my probationary period, and she was there to train me and, and teach me. And so uh, I, I'm literally the first night on the job, and I'm making my very first stop ever. Now, I worked nights. It was way after hours, and we saw this guy poking around the businesses and the buildings. And so she said, Hopper. That's what she still calls me to this day. Like, I'm the only person that still calls her Rocky. And she's the only person that just calls me Hopper. I never had a first name. I still don't. So she says, Hopper, stop that guy right there. He's poking around the building. That's suspicious activity. It's my first ever stop, right? Now, I have been trained in the academy. I know all the answers in theory. I stop this guy, do everything like I've been trained. I do the little frisk thing. I get out my pen and my paper. I ask him his name. What's your name? I write his name down. What's your date of birth? I write his date of birth down. What's your social security number? He gives me a social security number. I run it in you know, my walkie-talkie, and it comes back, no record, right? So I think to myself, well, you know, no record. He's a legit guy. He looks like a nice guy. So I was like, okay, well, have a nice night. Goodbye. And he said, whoa, 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 Rocky. Whoa, 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 whoa. Rocky didn't say a thing up until now. She steps forward and says, come back here, mister. Come back here. Give me your name again. She writes it down. Give me your date of birth down. She writes it down. Tell me how old you are. Well, she was really quick because she realized right away, this guy's lying because how old he says he is doesn't match the birth date he's given. And so she hooks him up. We, you know, take him downtown. We're going to fingerprint him, find out his haunted identity. Now, I understand the whole way down there, I'm thinking, this guy's telling the truth. I mean, honestly, he looks like a nice guy. I mean, he's a legit guy, this poor guy. He's telling the truth. I didn't tell her this is what I was thinking, right? So we fingerprint him, and you can't lie to the fingerprint. I mean, it is what it is. You're going to get found out. You're going to get caught. But I just knew when we got back his true identity, having done the fingerprinting, we're going to find out this guy's legit. He's telling the truth. I mean, I completely was bought in. Like, I'm kind of like on his side. I'm not telling her that, but I was. We get back the name. And she looks at it, she looks at him, shows it to him. Okay, now we know who you really are. He had like federal warrants. And as soon as he realized he was caught, I'll never forget the look on his face. He looks up at me with this big grin and kind of laughs a little bit as if to say, huh, gotcha. <laughs> and then he looks at her and says, tell him he's gonna be okay. And right then I realized, listen, I knew the academy answers, but I still had a lot to learn. I mean, I knew all the answers in the academy, but I still wasn't very streetwise practically. 
And I'm trying to tell you this today, that you can do all the Bible study and you can know all the answers in theory and you can believe in Satan theologically and still not have the street wisdom to overcome him practically. Ephesians 6.12 gives us a little intel in our intelligence gathering. Now, look at what it says. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, let me ask you, what do you believe about that verse? I mean, do you believe it seriously? I mean, do you take it literally? Now, here's the deal. The average American does not believe in Satan as a real person. The average American believes Satan is merely a symbol of evil. The average American does not believe he's a real being, he's a real person, he's a real power. Now, the reality, unfortunately, is many within the church believe the same thing. I mean, some of the data actually says half of self-professing Christians believe in Jesus, but they don't really believe in Satan. I'm just gonna tell you, listen, to say I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in Satan, is to make Jesus out to be a liar or a lunatic, because when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the eyewitness accounts of his life and ministry, on almost every single page, Jesus is either talking to Satan, or talking about Satan, or being tempted by Satan, and I will promise you, he was not talking to a symbol of evil. He was not talking about a symbol of evil. He was not tempted by a symbol of evil. Jesus believed Satan was a real person, a real power. And I want you to begin taking this seriously too, because I'm telling you, for modern Christians living in Western civilization, the tendency, honestly, even for us to be believe the Bible, listen, at this church, I don't know about you or where you've come from, but just so you know, at Abundant Life, we believe the Bible is the word of God, like to every generation. It is God's revel revelation. It is not outdated. It is not antiquated. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's why we spend so much time in the Word of God, because it is the truth of God, and it's the truth of God that sets us free from the lies of the enemy so we can be living what Jesus called life abundantly. You see, we're going to study the Word. That's where we're going to get the intel from. Now, here's the problem, though. Even in churches like ours, even for those of us that believe that what the Apostle Paul wrote here is more than just theory, that is something we should believe literally. The problem though, I think in modern Christianity and Western civilization is it's even our tendency sometimes to take the supernatural out of the Bible. You see, we have a tendency as Western people living in Western civilization to see everything through naturalism, materialism, try to explain everything in natural terms. And so, you know, we, we have this tendency to think, well, you know, we look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and of course, Jesus talked about the devil, talked to the devil, was tempted by the devil. It seems like on every single page, he's casting demons out of somebody. But the mentality sometimes is, well, that happened then. That doesn't happen now. See, that's the problem. We believe it theologically, but we don't really believe it practically. And we use terms like, well, you know, I went to counseling and my therapist said I have dysfunction. I come from a dysfunctional family and therefore I'm in this dysfunctional marriage. And here's the reality. Sometimes I'm telling you, the problem is not dysfunction, it's a demon. 
You see, we like to think in terms of dysfunction because it's more palatable to our Western thinking where we pride ourselves in higher education, we pride ourselves in our sophistication, we pride ourselves in our intellectualism, and what God is trying to teach us today, that we need to look beyond what is seen to the unseen. The reality is 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The reality is we look at these straitjackets, this addiction, this depression, this dysfunction, and we look for physical answers to spiritual problems. And it's time to look at what's going on behind the scenes because that which you cannot see is really the source of what you can see. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age. What this means is this. On a daily basis, we wrestle with demons. Not just figurative, though you may wrestle with some figurative demons, but we wrestle with literal demons. And as we look at the intel in the weeks ahead, as we drill down, today's just kind of this big picture intro, we're gonna drill down in the weeks ahead to make this really practical. I want you to understand that in some way, we wrestle with demons every day. You see, this is what we're learning. It is not enough just to know Satan exists theologically if you don't know how to defeat him practically. I mean, I came out of the academy in June of 1992. I had been taught and I had gone through all the training and I had all the answers in the academy and I knew how to do my job in theory, but my first night on the streets of Kansas City, I realized I am not ready practically. I may know it in theory, like I know Satan exists theoretically, theologically, but I don't know how to defeat him practically. You see, we need to do a little intelligence gathering on the adversary. It's what I call Christian intelligence on the adversary, CIA. And actually, CIA was the original name of the book, and we changed the name of the book, and there's a story behind that. But what this book really is about is Christian intelligence gathering, Christian intelligence on the adversary. It's a book Book about the enemy strategy. Because the reality is, just like our government has a central intelligence agency, what does the CIA do? The CIA is spying on America's enemies. And while we're spying on them, they're spying on us. You know why? Because you cannot win in warfare if you cannot anticipate your enemy's moves. What I loved about my former life, honestly, before God called me to preach, and I thought I would be a police officer for like 25 or 30 years, and it's all I thought I would do. One of the things I loved was to do surveillance, all right? One of the best parts of the job was to set up surveillance where you're watching the bad guys, but they don't know they're being watched. Oh, it was fun. Yeah, we'd watch them from a distance. We might watch them night after night. And once we learned their moves, then we were ready to make our move. You see, it does not matter. The reality is if it's a baseball game or a football game or warfare or a cop on the streets of Kansas City or your life personally trying to walk out what it means to live life abundantly, you need to know your adversary. That's what we're doing here today. And for the next six weeks hereafter, we're doing some intelligence gathering on the adversary. And once you know your enemy's moves, now all of a sudden, you know how to anticipate his move so you don't 
keep falling for that same old move. You see, the good news is it is highly predictable and entirely winnable. But Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Here's the deal. Satan wants to control the knowledge. He wants to hide from you the knowledge because Satan knows knowledge is power. He that has the knowledge has the power. Hosea 4, 6, I think applies to our day and age in modern Christianity in American society. In this age of biblical illiteracy, where it seems so many people stay forever in spiritual immaturity and infancy, he that lacks knowledge lacks the power. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now I've told you it's not enough just that you know who Satan is theologically if you don't know the strategies of the enemy. That's where we're heading very, very shortly. You see, our warfare with Satan is winnable because he is completely predictable. As we do our little intelligence gathering in the next few weeks, we use uh, what, what we used to say, well, we know the M.O., all right? That's using a little police jargon from my former life. What is the M.O.? Well, we know his modus operandi. We know his method of operation. And uh, what happens when you understand his modus operandi, his method of operation, is all of a sudden you can start anticipating his moves. And so you're not stepping back into that same snare again and again and again, that same place, that same prison. All of a sudden, you can start to anticipate what he's going to do so that now you know what you're going to do. And the reality is we study, we're going to talk back and walk back in time to Genesis chapter 3 because the very same moves that Satan put on Eve in Genesis 3 is the very same moves he uses on you and me in the 21st century. He's only got two moves. He attacks through lies, he attracts through lust. He attacks through lies, he attracts through lust. It's the one-two punch of the adversary. He attacks through lies and then he attracts through lust. You see, he uses the same moves from Genesis 3 all these eons later to the 21st century. That is why our warfare is winnable because he is entirely predictable. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices. And here's the problem right here. For too many of us, we are ignorant of his devices. And he that lacks knowledge lacks power. You need to have the knowledge of who God is and you need to have the knowledge of who Satan is. You need to have the knowledge of who you are. And once you know who you are in Christ, all of a sudden you realize, I don't have to keep falling for the same tactics of the adversary. I now know his devices, his tactics. If you don't know his devices or his tactics, he will take advantage of you. And for many a Christian, he's taken advantage of you over and over again, one straitjacket after another, this addiction, that dysfunction, and I want you to see today is the day that it's time to start taking back some stolen ground from the enemy. John 10 and verse 10, it says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The battle lines have been drawn. God has a plan for your life. Satan has a plan for your life, and all that God wants to give you, Satan wants to steal from you, and for some of us here today, Satan has stolen from us over and over and over again. He's taken more ground than you ever thought he could take. And you've been in that place of sin and addiction, that prison dysfunction, and you're in that straitjacket now of depression. And today is the day that it's time to start taking back some stolen ground from the enemy. And as you grow in the knowledge of the truth, it's the truth that Jesus promises will set you free as you begin learning the devices, the tactics 
of the enemy. All of a sudden, it's not just theology. It's not just knowing it intellectually. It's going to become very practical as you wage war for freedom daily. Now, here's what Jesus said. As he continues the same sermon, John chapter 8, first he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And then he says this to them in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, watch this. Here's Satan's plan for your life a slave. He wants to make a slave out of you. And the reality is that if you don't believe in Satan, if you're like half of Americans who honestly think, you know, Pastor Phil, that seems a little bit loony. Seriously, I'm going to tell you something. You're already a prisoner. You're a prisoner unaware. You're the worst kind of prisoner. You don't even know you're a prisoner. Jesus said, he that commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Now watch this. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. See, there's the two agendas for your life. Satan wants to bring slavery. Jesus wants to bring freedom and liberty. There's the two plans for your life. You're born into slavery spiritually, but Jesus set you free through what he did at Calvary. Now it's really important, and we do our little intelligence, Intelligence gathering as members of you know the Christian intelligence agency that we get our intelligence gathering from the right places. Do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18? Listen carefully, God forbid the people of God as they were going into the promised land. He said, do not be a part of any of the occult practices of the pagan people that you're about to encounter. The occult is real. Listen carefully. It's not pretend. It's not a game. The occult, the word occult means secret or hidden. Secret or hidden knowledge. What are we talking about? It's defined as astrology. It's defined as sorcery. It's defined as witchcraft. It's defined as as, uh, the stars or it's defined as palm reading or tarot card reading. Here's the reality. There is secret knowledge Eve wanted secret knowledge at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God wanted to give her that knowledge in his time, his way. She chose to get it another way, and her world began reeling, and the world is still reeling. Here's the reality. If you choose to get secret knowledge apart from God's knowledge, you are playing in Satan's background, and I will promise you will become Satan's little punk. You will become his little prisoner. And what I'm trying to say is stay away from the occult knowledge because it's real. It's not a game. I just realized, somebody just told me this week that they have actually marketed a pink Ouija board for girls. Church, listen, Ouija boards are not a game. Ouija boards are real. You are opening yourself up to demonic principalities, demonic powers. Understand what happens when you dance with demons Understand what happens when you live on the border and play on the fringe. God loves you infinitely. That's why he has given you boundaries. Our intelligence gathering is the word of God. We need no more revelation than what God has given us. He's going to tell us everything we need to know to live successfully and to live freely in this world full of captivity. 
And so the reality is this. He said, the Son shall set you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, and you shall know the Son. And if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What did we learn from this passage? You're born into this world as a slave to sin. But Jesus paid our ransom, and Jesus is our redemption. Because of sin, we're born into slavery spiritually, but we're set free by what Jesus did at Calvary. Walk back with me in time in our little intelligence gathering. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. God creates the first man, Adam. Remember what God said in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. God is three in one, a triune being. So he says, let's make man in our image, a triune being. That's why he gave Adam a body, soul, and spirit, three in one, to bear the image of God. But not only did he give Adam his image, he also gave Adam dominion. He said, I'm going to give Adam dominion over the earth. Dominion means he had a place of power and a place of authority. He'd been given God's image for the purpose of reproducing God's image in his offspring. He tells Adam, be fruitful multiply and fill the earth. You see, Adam was to establish the kingdom of God by reproducing the image of God in the sons and daughters of God. Adam was not to reproduce sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. He was to reproduce sons and daughters of God that bear the image of God. Now understand something. The serpent in Genesis 3 wanted what Adam had. You see, Adam had what he used to have. As we go in our little intelligence gathering next week, we're going to find out that this same Adam was in Satan's old home. He was sitting on his old throne, and he wanted it back. The serpent knows that he's got to get Adam to sin. If he will sin, he will trade his dominion and give it to him. And so he immediately goes on the attack. He'd heard what God said. Don't eat of that tree. And the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. He knows if he can get Adam to eat of that tree, he will die spiritually. He'll have a living body and a living soul, but a dead spirit. And that is why as fallen sons of Adam and the fallen daughters of Eve, we all come into this life physically alive, but spiritually dead. You were born with a living body and a living soul, but a dead spirit. John chapter three, twice Jesus said, you must be born again. And only when you put your your faith in him, are you born again spiritually? And all of a sudden, you too then become a trinity. You get back all that Adam lost in the garden because of sin. John 1 and verse 12, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them, and only them, gave him the right to become the children of God. You see, until you've been born again by faith in him, you're not triune in his image. Now here's what happened. The moment that Adam sinned, he died spiritually. He had a living body, living soul, but all of a sudden, he could no longer reproduce God's image in his offspring. Genesis 5.3, Adam begat a son, Seth, in his own image, in his own likeness. And not only that, but the moment that Adam sinned, dominion that God had given him was transferred back to Satan. So that now Adam sold all of his sons and daughters, all of humanity, all of his posterity into slavery spiritually. You see, because of Adam's sin, it's what theologians call original sin. We are born under Satan's dominion, and sin is our prison, but it's in the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, that he undid the curse of the first Adam. You see, while we're born in sin under Satan's dominion, it's Jesus that paid our ransom. He is the source then of our redemption. 
And that is why he said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. He has the power, the authority, to set us free legally. Understand, Satan is a name that means accuser. Revelation 12, he's the accuser of the brethren. And what that means is, as the prosecutor and accuser, he had a legal right to bring about accusation against us. Because we trespassed against God, he legally could bring accusation and prosecution against us for our sin. We were under his dominion because of Adam's sin, but all that changed at Calvary. The moment you placed your faith in the Son of God, you got a new master. Jesus is your new master, and Jesus is a different kind of master. Matthew chapter 11, he said, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, when you come to Jesus as your new master, he sets you free. But as long as you stay with sin and under Satan's dominion, it'll always be to you a prison. You see, because of sin, we're born into slavery spiritually, but because of what Jesus did at Calvary, you have been set free. Now understand, Jesus read from the Isaiah scroll. I want you to see why Jesus came. He said, this is the reason I'm here. Luke chapter four, he reads from the Isaiah scroll, Isaiah 61 and verse one, one of the messianic prophecies. And he makes this statement, he applies it to himself. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound. So Jesus says, this prophecy is fulfilled in me. He claimed messianic authority. The Messiah is a word that means anointed one, the promised one of heaven. He said, the spirit of the Lord God has anointed me to preach good tidings to the the meek to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now, right here's the problem. Listen, the problem of a human being is a problem of a human heart. This is why it all begins here. He doesn't immediately say, I've come to open the prison to them that are bound. No, no. First, what does he say? I've come to heal the brokenhearted. You see, the problem for a human being is a problem of the human heart. Our hearts have been broken. Our hearts have been marred and scarred by sin. Now understand something. When Jesus speaks here of this broken-hearted condition, he's not speaking of a heart as in the muscle in your chest that beats blood throughout your body. When the Bible talks about the heart, the Bible over and over again is talking about the soul. The soul of the human being has been marred by sin and scarred by sin because of Adam's sin. Theologians call it original sin. Then watch this. We're born with a broken heart already scarred by sin, but then because of sin committed by us or sin committed against us, that heart becomes increasingly broken. We call it today baggage. A lot of us walking around with a lot of baggage. And it's what Jesus was talking here about a broken hearted condition. And this is the heart of the matter. It begins with the heart of the human being. And I'm telling you this because most of secular psychology only deals with the symptoms. When you go to therapy, it's behavior modification, it's self-reformation, and it has no hope of bringing long transformation. And much of Christian counseling is really no different. Here's the problem with modern Christian counseling. Once again, we wanna take the supernatural out of the Bible. We call it dysfunction. Know the reality. If we're really Christians and we're really counseling, let's call it what it is. Sometimes it's a demon. 
And until we deal with the source and quit merely dealing with the symptom, nobody's going to get free, even though Jesus already set them free. And so this was my condition, guys, for years and years and years. If you'd have known me 20 years ago, you would have never known. That guy has a broken heart inside of him. Man, that is one broken-hearted dude. That dude's walking around with a lot of baggage. No, no, you didn't see any baggage in my life, but I knew it was there, and Jesus did too. More importantly, Satan knew it was there. Satan did too. You know why? Because Satan was very instrumental. It happens when we're still young. Those early years are so formative. We come into this world with this broken-hearted condition as members of Adam's broken race, then sin committed against us or sin committed by us, more brokenness, more baggage. So I'm that guy 20 years ago. Listen, had you known me 20 years ago, what you would have seen was a picture of success, outwardly confidence, outwardly full of success. I mean, here's this guy that succeeded at everything he ever tried to do, Division I college scholarship athlete. I mean, he goes on the PD, and he's one of the youngest supervisors ever promoted to that position. I mean, he's a SWAT cop. I mean, here's a guy full of awards and recognition. I was the 1997 National SWAT cop of the year. Oh, stop. Yeah, and before that, I was prom king 1987. Yeah. See, I, I was that guy that looked like, man, he's got it all together. He's got no baggage, no brokenness, oh no. That outward persona was a cover-up. And until you quit the cover-up, God can't begin the clean-up. Until you come out of hiding, God can't start the healing. And quite frankly, it was beginning to affect my marriage. I'm convinced Satan was coming after my marriage. I'm not sure if I would still be married, if there were not a pivotal moment in my life many years ago where things began to change. And I'm praying that there's a pivotal moment in your life that might begin today where you begin letting God deal with the source and not merely the symptom. Listen, if you're an alcoholic, alcohol is not your real problem. If you're a nicotine addict, cigarettes are not your real problem. If depression is your problem, listen, it might be a clinical condition, but it might not be. You see, the reality is there's spiritual powers pulling the strings behind the scenes. And a physical answer is not gonna be the answer to a spiritual issue. The heart of the human being and the heart of the problem is the human heart. Now here's what I know now that I didn't know then. I didn't have the discernment then. I didn't have the maturity then. Uh, I, I know a lot of things now I wish I'd have known then. All I am is a liberated slave going back and trying to help other slaves get liberated. That's what I am. I had this broken heart and brokenness. Listen, Satan knows the area of your brokenness. And he crafts the bait based on your brokenness. See, why is alcoholism the bondage for one person when workaholism is a bondage for another? See, why is sexual addiction the bondage for one person but overeating or over shopping is the bondage for another person? 
See, Satan knows you intimately, whether you've been studying him, he's been studying you. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world. And he has been studying human nature since the fall of Adam. That's a long time. And he knows your areas of brokenness. He knows your places of pain. And very early on, he begins crafting the bait for you to take based on your area of brokenness. So it goes from your brokenness to the bait, and the bait then becomes your bondage. And that was the progression in my life that began about middle school, honestly. So by the time I left for the University of Kansas, I was in complete captivity. I didn't know it. I had a straitjacket on. Nobody else could see it. And it wasn't until years later that Jesus began to set me free. And I'll tell you why. Because the reality, even when I started walking with Jesus and I called upon the name of the Lord and I was saved, I knew I'd been forgiven of my sin, but I still needed to be healed from my sin. And forgiveness and healing, they're not the same thing. You see, I knew I'd been forgiven, but like a lot of Christians, I still needed to be healed. And this is what Jesus said, I've come to do. I'm going to heal the brokenhearted. Isaiah 1.18, by his stripes, we are healed. We're not just forgiven. He wants to heal us. But I couldn't get healed until I came out of hiding the reality. Because my heart had been broken, I began to hang on to my heart. I began to guard my heart. I began to realize nobody is able to hold my heart, not even God. And without knowing it, I had withheld my heart, not just from my wife, but even from God. I was going to hang on to what I had. And there was a moment in my life that I began to end the cover up because I really, really wanted to clean up. And I got out of hiding and I began to get healing. You know where it began? It began in my marriage. I'm telling you, Satan came after my marriage. And for the first time in my life, I let my wife inside places I'd never let anybody. You see, we put such a big emphasis on community here, biblical community, being in community, absolutely rebelling from the anonymity that some of you are in. Listen, the strength of sin is in its secrecy. Satan wants to isolate you and alienate you. He wants to shame you. Well, if they really knew me, they wouldn't really like me. That's a lie of the enemy. There were things I never told my wife because I was afraid she wouldn't love me. And I began to let her in many years ago. For the first time ever, I found community first in my own family. Listen, there is no healing going solo. Take a We're starting 20 new groups this spring, biblical community. That's where you're going to find healing. Yes, you find forgiveness just one-on-one with Jesus, but you can't find healing just one-on-one with Jesus. It comes through community with another, and all of a sudden, I start letting my wife see into me. That's called intimacy, and that's when I started finding healing, when I came out of hiding so that years later, I can honestly say, Jesus has healed my broken heart, and with the healing of my brokenness. He set me free from the baggage, no more walking around in bondage, this invisible straitjacket. You see, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that were bound. You see, this is what Jesus does. Jesus came to set the captive free, but Satan comes to take the free captive. 
And for many of us, we've been set free already because we've trusted in Jesus and what he did at Calvary, but practically, we're still living like we're still in captivity because that is the work, you see, of the enemy. Every single day, he's trying to lure you back into captivity when Jesus has set you free. Now listen carefully. Jesus told us the battle lines in John 10 and verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And I'm praying that somebody today, for the first time maybe, is going to start taking back some stolen territory. Somebody has taken something from you. Scores and scores of people right here, right now, were sexually molested as a child. And you've never gotten over it. Somebody right now, right here, was abandoned by somebody they loved, a father, a mother, and you've never gotten over it. And the broken heart inside of you, the feelings of rejection and pain have become a straight jacket of shame. And Jesus wants to set you free beginning today. And understand what happens. Now watch this. We trade life abundantly for living in captivity when we believe the lies of the enemy. This is how it happens. I'm going to drill down and we're going to put a lot of handles on this in the days ahead. I'm just trying to give you a big picture. What happens? How do we go into captivity? Remember what Jesus said? You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. What happens though? When we believe the lies of the enemy, it creates for us a false reality. And many of us here are living in a false reality. I lived in a false reality for years. Even though I had this outward success and this persona of the SWAT cup, you know, this national tactical officer of the year thing, listen carefully, that was a false reality. It was a cover-up. The false reality that Satan had given me when I believed alive the enemy was this, Phil, you're not worthy. Phil, you're full of inadequacy. This was the false reality began when I was in middle school. Phil, nobody will really love you if they really knew you. Now here's what happens. When you start believing a lie of the enemy, it creates a false reality that will become your source of captivity. It all began with a lie that you believe. Look in Genesis 3, what happened to Eve? She chose to believe what Satan said over what God said, and the world is still reeling. You shall not surely die. Now, it didn't begin with an outright denial. It began with a subtle seed of doubt. The first time Satan shows up in Scripture, he's quoting Scripture, twisting it, contorting it. And you know what he says? He doesn't outright deny it. He merely gets her to doubt it. Eve, did God really say? Did he really? And when she doubted it, she was but a hair's breadth away from denying it. But when you read between the lines, and there's always more going on than meets the eye, the real lie she believed was not merely what God had said, but whether or not God was good. Eve, if God really loves you, why is he holding out on you? God, if God really loved you, he'd let you eat of this tree. How many times have you thought, you know, if God really loved me, he wouldn't have let that happen to me. That's straight out of the pit of hell. You see, the real lie that he believed was not merely what God said, but rather, is God good? 
And when you begin taking the bait, the lie of the enemy, it will lead to a place of captivity. Understand, we do in the toast times of temptation when we're hearing the lies of the enemy, and the lies are all around us every single day. We live in a day of distortion and deception and delusion where you have to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You hear me say it week after week after week. It doesn't matter the sermon. I say the same thing. You must believe what God has said no matter what you see. Because what you see will often be contrary to what God has said right now. You're in captivity to alcohol or nicotine or methamphetamine. Right now, you've been through a painful divorce. You feel pain and rejection, hopelessness, and you wonder, can it ever, ever be joyful again? Is there any hope for me? Why even go on? Right now, there is a spirit of suicide. Somebody here has dealt with suicide and dark thoughts year after year after year after year, and you wonder, is there any hope? Why even go on? You call it for what it is. It is a lie of the enemy. The truth shall set you free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. Now, sin committed repeatedly becomes idolatry, which leads to captivity. We're going to drill down on this one. See, Satan has lost his place in your life. Ephesians 4.27, as a child of God, he has lost all right to your life. A legal transaction took place at Calvary. Legally speaking, you were set free. You were exonerated. He hit delete on your record. It's as though you never sinned. Satan can now make no accusation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Satan has no legal ground as our prosecutor and accuser. John would write in 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now watch this, Ephesians 4.27, don't give place to the devil. Every time you sin, you give him a little place again. Now, one sin doesn't become a prison. No, it's when you sin in that area again and again and again and again. You lose your dominion the way Adam lost his. Adam was in a place of dominion, authority, power. He lost that dominion, gave it back to Satan when he sinned. You see why Satan wants you to sin? For the same reason he wanted Adam to sin. Because you've traded places with him. You're now legally in a place of authority over him. But when you sin repeatedly, you put yourself back under him. You go into captivity. We call it addiction, dysfunction. The Bible calls it a stronghold, 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. A stronghold began as a little toehold. You gave the enemy a little toehold. That toehold then became a foothold. You kept sinning in that same area. The foothold became a handhold, and the handhold has now become a stronghold. You're no longer dealing now with merely your fallen nature, uh, with your fleshly nature that's already prone to sin. Now you're dealing with a demon. You've given the Satan and, uh, something to hang on to in your life. A stronghold is something that you hung on to when you should have been hanging on to God. Now it's hanging on to you. A stronghold is something that you chose to reach for when you should have been reaching for Jesus, and now it's reaching for you. 
See, now you have a stronghold, but I've got good news for you that we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Self-reformation, behavior modification, another New Year's resolution is not the answer. You will not overcome a spiritual stronghold with a physical answer. That we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And I'm telling you, over the next seven weeks, if you and I will do this together, Together, God is going to tear down some strongholds in this church. He's going to tear down some strongholds. It's here today, those straight jackets that nobody else can see. I want you to meditate on two things and then we're done this week. Just meditate on this. Two absolute promises that Jesus makes from Isaiah 61 and verse 1. First of all is this. Christ has the power to set the captive free no matter how strong the sin that binds them. Nicotine is not stronger than Jesus. Methamphetamine is not stronger than Jesus. Alcohol is not stronger than Jesus. Your depression is not stronger than Jesus. Bitterness, unforgiveness that has held you in bondage because of that brokenness and that rejection, it is not stronger than Jesus. Jesus has all power and all authority. He has the power to set you free. There's a second one right here. Christ has the power to bind up the brokenhearted no matter how broken the heart inside of him. He has the power to set the captive free no matter how strong the sin. He has the power to bind up the brokenhearted no matter how broken the heart inside of him. What do I do? Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This, this week, would you begin doing this, calling on the name of Jesus? Jesus, set me free. Jesus, I believe you have the power to set me free. Jesus, I believe that you've broken all the power of the enemy in me. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be free. And I will promise you, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed.
That's my story, it can be yours. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me right now in these closing moments with every head bowed, every eye closed. And I wanna pray for you, I wanna pray with you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you'd say, Phil, honestly, that's me. I've got this straight jacket. I've worn it for years. I know it's there. And I want to be free. I want to pray with you. Would you let me do that? Just raise your hand right now. Say, Phil, that's me. It's where it begins. Honesty breaks the strength of secrecy. Would you do something for me if you can? Raise your other hand in the air now. This is the universal sign of surrender. It's what I saw many times in my former years of law enforcement. I give up. It's what it means, I give up. God, with our hands in the air right now, we give up. We surrender. All that we have, all that we are, we call on the name of the Lord and we believe for salvation. And I pray over every person here, God in heaven, that you'd bless in the days ahead, that you'd begin to bring healing to these broken hearts inside of us. Lord, these hands raised in the air represent a heart of humility inwardly. These hands raised reflect hearts that are surrendered. And I pray in the days ahead, the power of the living God upon each of our lives, especially these God with their hands in the air. I pray, God, against every demonic principality and power. Satan, it's over. You have no right in the blood-bought bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bride at abundant life. You have no place in the life of these children of the living God. These men and women have been bought with the blood, ransomed and redeemed and purchased. You have no longer any accusation. And Jesus, I pray that you'd begin to release each of us from prison. You've come to set the captive free. And God, today I pray it would begin. And I prayed in the powerful, powerful, precious name of the Son of God, amen. Would you bless him and praise him today? Give him glory, would you? Guys, I love you so much, and I hope you have a really blessed week. 4.30 over in the core, we're studying the book of Revelation. We call it the well. We're going to drink deep. We'd love to see you there. If not, have a blessed week. I'll see you back here.